0: Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow, and much, much more. This episode is a recorded conversation between myself, Joe Stewart, and Mark Feely. Mark Feely is a Melbourne-based yoga teacher who runs his own studio, Westside Yoga, based in the western suburb of Seddon. He also runs retreats and teacher trainings. When you attend one of Mark's classes, you feel you are in safe, knowledgeable hands and yet given the freedom to fully inhabit your own body and practice. He manages to impart a lot with very few words. Now in this podcast we've heard many of our guests offer the advice, teach what you know. So why did we pick it for this episode's title? The reason is that I feel that Mark genuinely embodies his teachings. As an example, when I was diagnosed with stomach cancer, Mark very generously gave me six months of free yoga at the studio he was running in Northcote at the time, and he barely even knew me. As you'll hear in this episode, he is continually practicing self-inquiry and living his life according to the yogic principles he teaches in his classes. In this conversation, we'll hear about Mark's background in exercise physiology, his time in the corporate world, and how a secret crush helped fuel his love of yoga. We'll also hear about Mark's love of surfing and its relationship with his yoga practice. Finally, Mark shares advice for new yoga teachers and people thinking of starting their own yoga studios. It's a great conversation with a man I deeply respect and admire, so let's get on with it. As always, stick around for our picks of the week. All right, thanks for joining us, Mark. We're here in your lovely studio, Westside Yoga. Um, Just had a beautiful
1: practice with you this morning. Good to have you guys here.
0: Really good to have you here. I'm feeling really good from that. So, perhaps you could tell us about your background and and a little bit about where you grew up.
2: Yeah, so I'm a Queensland boy. Um, Grew up in uh, central Queensland, so Rockhampton. Uh, one of four kids, so I'm the eldest of four, um, and uh, my mum and dad and two sisters still live up that way. My brother lives in, in Brisbane, and I've lived pretty much all over the place. Uh, in a previous life before yoga, i, I travelled quite a bit and worked quite extensively in construction industry and shopping centre industry, but found myself uh, in Melbourne, and this is my home and has been my home now for the last 12 years, uh, but most recently myself and my partner Lyndall have moved to uh, to Janjuk down the coast, so near Torquay. Uh, for both lifestyle, connection to nature, um, and a way of living. So uh, it's, it's been quite a journey, so I've travelled a fair bit, but feel like i finally found home. You know? Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's really good. Yeah.
1: And so would you like to tell us when you first encountered yoga?
2: Yeah, yoga. God, it seemed like so long ago, and yet at the same time, seems like yesterday. Right? Um, so first encountered yoga, uh, I had a surfing injury. Yeah, so I uh, damaged my shoulder. I came off my board into a, a sandbar in Queensland and, uh, and my shoulder was not not great for quite some time. And then I moved to Sydney and someone mentioned uh, yoga to me. Perhaps that might be a remedy to try and get some more movement back into my shoulder. So uh, I was living near Surrey Hills in Sydney at the time, working in Sydney, and so I went along to a Bikram class. It was kind of my local studio. And I loved the idea uh, you know, getting in strong, hard, sweaty classes, you know, strong instructors, take no prisoners type approach. That's where I was at that point in my life. Um, so it suited my personality and my lifestyle and, and fell in love with the practice. Secretly fell in love with the instructor at the same
1: time, <laughs> which was part of
2: the reason that I kept going. Um, though she never knew that, so uh, probably doesn't know it to this day. But but loved the practice, and you know, as we all know, this this practice of yoga seeps into you. And yes, it, it enabled me to open my shoulder, and it resolved that issue. But it opened my heart, right and It created all of those portals that each of us experience when you practice yoga long enough. So, but like most of us, you know, life got busy and I practiced a bit and then it fell away. Then I practiced a bit and fell away until over a period of time, my life changed. I moved to Melbourne, got married and started to settle in here. But there was a sense of emptiness inside of me that really only got lit up when I went and practiced. And then subsequently my marriage fell apart. My job, an amazing job, but wasn't giving me the satisfaction that I found in yoga. So from that point, yoga kept calling me and kept calling me and kept calling me to the point where I went, okay, I need to listen to this. Took some time off work, went to India for three months um, and just traveled and sat and meditated and prayed and came back and at that point decided it was it was time to that was your answer a little that was bit the more. future yeah yeah so from there went to uh, Australian Yoga Academy in Paran that you know mm-hmm. and uh, did, did my teacher training um, through AYA but yeah so the experience kind of started right back you know this was maybe 18 years ago now wow and started I was, I was on a
1: very physical level yeah. yeah yeah
2: so I'd always had meditation practice I started meditating when I was in school I did a Course in TM in transcendental meditation um, when I was 16. So, meditation I come from a Catholic background, so meditation and God, if you like, or that Catholic version of God, was in our family, it was in our conversations. You know, we went to church regularly, I went to a Catholic school, and you can debate you know, mm-hmm. the, the positives and the challenges of, of Catholicism, but you know, there was always a level of spirituality. My mum's a very spiritual human being um, to the point where she was. Going to become a nun oh, wow. before she met my dad. So she was exploring that path, and then she met dad, and then of course everything else changed. But so spirituality has always been, been a part of our home and it was always a part of me. But you know, as a child, never really explored it until when I was 16. I started, um, started transcendental meditation. But always felt a deeper sense of awareness, a deeper sense of calling, but not quite knowing what, what that was. But it wasn't really, you know, until sort of you know, 20 years later that yoga through through that uh, injury opened a, a door and stepped through it and, you know, the world's never been the same since. So, uh, yeah.
1: And for a lot of surfers, surfing is their meditation, yeah. right? Like, that's yeah. where they find that inner peace and connection. Yeah,
2: yeah. Like, surfing, surfing to me is, the uh, best way I can describe it, is my reset button. So whenever I'm upside down, whenever I'm feeling disconnected, or I feel like I'm just stuck in a place, I go to the ocean and uh, and surfing for me is an, in multi layers. That it's just one layer is simple connection with nature, that immersion, literally to dive under a wave and can be completely wrapped and immersed in nature. That in itself, and me, like the power me, of
1: nature.
2: Absolutely, it's it's you're in awe of it, you know. Um, and then surfing um, is a way of self-expression. And like my yoga, surfing has changed. When I was younger, like, like lots of people, my surfing was quite uh, aggressive, you know. I wanted to tame the wave. I wanted to be the best surfer with the moon. And to, like, push yourself. Push myself, yeah. you know. Surf the biggest waves and have the most intricate moves on the wave, right. But as time's progressed, and what I've learned, like meditation, like yoga, like life... The more you yield, the more you respect, the more you trust and you go with the energy of the wave, the deeper the, the surfing experience, but the deeper connection with nature. So my board is longer. I paddle a little slower these <laughs> days, you know, and I certainly not uh, don't have too many tricks in my bag. But for me, it's it's a daily ritual of going to the ocean uh, and being immersed in the ocean. And if the surf is there, amazing. If it's not, just get in and swim and dive into it. and for me that it's a seamless transition you know to me that is yoga you know, life is yoga as, as you probably as you guys know for sure but it's yeah insofar as we've now moved our lives from Melbourne to the coast to be there right to be connected in nature and you know from our bedroom we can hear the ocean we're 200 meters from the water and every day we get up in one way or another we find ourselves you know in the coast and in nature and it's cleansing, it's healing, it's embracing, you know, that, that to me, it's the true essence of the Divine Mother.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. You've really beautifully expressed your experience surfing. How is your experience on your yoga mat different or the mm. same?
2: Mm. It's probably changed in parallel with with surfing, you know, and what led what, I don't know, you know, but... My practice, as I said, my practice originally was Bikram. So hard, strong, you know, the harder and the sweatier and the more difficult, the better. You know, I didn't want to go to a class that was an easy-flowing class. I wanted to go and have the strongest physical workout and push myself to my absolute limit. And if I wasn't exhausted when I walked out of the room, then in my opinion, at that point in time, that wasn't a good yoga practice, yeah? Same as surfing. less I was able to create... You know the most intricate moves on a board and surf the biggest waves. Then it wasn't a great surfing experience. You know that's ego in its full flight. Right? But when you're in it, you, you don't realise that you're in it. Yeah,
1: because you have to be so in the moment to pull off that amazing yeah. stuff.
2: Yeah. But my practice, you know, like surfing, has evolved over time. Whereas for me now, you know, the the things that I've learnt and studied and you know been fortunate enough to have some wonderful teachers and experiences in yoga that. You know, the postures are just a portal, the postures are one small component of the practice that really, they're simply a portal into another level of experience and we use the poses then to get into our bodies and unlock layers that are hidden to us. Uh, Trauma, joy, lightness, darkness, all the same. So my yoga practice has become much more about breath and bandhas and drishti philosophy pranayama meditation a much more holistic practice it's rare these days that i will look and search out a strong physical practice i haven't been to bikram for a long time and i love bikram and i can only speak highly of it it suited me at a time doesn't suit me anymore
1: although your practice this morning it was a flowing practice and your your teaching is gentle but it's still a strong practice like it's still a dynamic
2: vinyasa flow like that energy is still there yeah so i love that i love that combination of strength and gentleness right for me the sukka and the stita you know how you find the passion and the power to be in the shape whatever that shape is whether it's a shape on a wave or it's a shape in life or it's a shape that you create in a yoga studio how you find that power and that strength but how you then balance that with ease and gentleness and softness and clarity of mind and being completely present and for me this is the for, for my own journey the craft um of really being able to, f- to experience all of those emotions but held in this cauldron of, of a yoga asana practice. So, yeah, to me, a, a strong practice, but it's moved. So it's if it's just, for me now, just a strong physical practice, that's not enough. I, I feel... That's anxious. just one layer. It's one yeah, layer. yeah. So strong, yeah. So my classes are... Generally, I teach a strong flow, but the intention is always about mindfulness and using the practice to allow us to go deeper beyond um, that. So interweaving philosophy and meditation and pranayama um, through the practice to me are are, are vitally important. So, you know, I I teach what I love. You know, that was one of the great insights that were given to me when I first Dominique from Australian Mm -hmm. Yoga Academy, you know, when I graduated, it was one of the things that she said to me is, you know, when you go out and you you start your teaching journey, teach what you love, right? Don't try to replicate someone else. And be someone else you're you right there's only one of you so be you you know in whatever expression that is so i'm you know I've, I've taken that lesson literally with me for many years now and i i what i teach is what i practice yeah and I, I try to keep that as seamless as possible if it feels good in my body amazing i'll teach it if it doesn't then i'll question it yeah
1: I love how you began the practice today with the question of what is yoga to you? Yeah. And that's a beautiful self-inquiry. And I
2: wondered, what is yoga to you? So many things, right? So many things. Like, at one end of the spectrum, I would say to you, I don't know. I don't know what yoga is, right?
1: Well, it's like once you've kind of put a limit on it, like, this is yoga in this Mm. little
2: box, that seems like you're missing the point. Yeah. So it's such, for me, it's such a juicy question. Like, what is Mm. yoga for you? And when you... Not not how do you practice yoga, not what you how will you define yoga, but what is yoga to you? Right? what is it to you? What why? What, what do you what calls you? Why do you practice? For me, so many layers. But for me, it helps me make sense of the world when I'm in flow and I'm in practice and I'm in ritual. Um, there's a connection to self and a connection to others that I struggle to put into words. Things just simply make sense. I'm softer, I'm calmer, I'm more compassionate, I feel more integrated, my body is more healthy, my mind is more gentle, my heart is so much more open. So it provides all of these experiences and yet, you know, after, my goodness, 18 years and I don't know how many thousands of classes I've taught, I feel like I have barely turned one page of a book that I can't see the end of, yeah? So... That's what it means to me today. What it means tomorrow, who knows. But at its at its, if I distill all that down into what yoga has enabled me to crystallize as to what is for me at this moment my dharma, my purpose, my intention in life, my sacred journey, I've been able to distill it down with the help of, of Lyndall and others into a phrase that says that my life is completely about presence. So to be completely present in love always. So
0: Beautiful. that's my
2: dharma. I have it written at home. It's on a book that I carry with me, to be present in love always. And to me, from my experience, and we're all different, but that's the distillation of the journey for me so far. If I can be completely present in this moment, in love, that is in its broadest context, to love all things and everyone simultaneously, including myself, <laughs> Which is our biggest and th- that's where it starts. <laughs> yeah, and be in that state always. To me, if I can achieve that, even for brief moments at a time, then that to me is my closest step to samadhi, to bliss. Yeah. So that's my that's my dharma at the moment. It's what I work to to be present in love always.
1: Was there a moment when you had this realization? of going from yoga as being your own personal practice to something that it was your dharma to share? Yeah. Or was that just a gradual evolution?
2: <sighs> gradual, gradual evolution. Gradual evolution. I kind of felt always that I wanted to share it. And I guess also like most people, when you start your teacher training process, you know, I was unsure, maybe you were, that whether you wanted to be a teacher or not. But when I got to the end of that, that amazing course through Australian Yoga Academy... You know, I felt there was so much wisdom that could literally assist the world to be a more integrated, loving, open, trusting place. Yeah? And you know, I'm deliberately not using good and bad you know, because you know, the things that I've started to learn and through books like The Power of Now and you know, people who are wise and see the world you know, through more enlightened eyes than I do at the moment. This ability just to accept everything for what it is. Yeah, It's neither good nor bad. It's an experience. And the darkness inside of me isn't to be ashamed or to be hidden from. It's it's a part of me that needs to be um, opened and explored. And it has a purpose. If it has control of you, different story. But understanding what is, what is the darkness in, inside of you. And that journey for me through yoga, through the practice, has become... My greatest teacher and probably my greatest greatest friend through this journey. Yeah,
1: it seems like as well. The more that you try and deny aspects of yourself or dark sides mm. of yourself, the more power you actually give them over you. Whereas yeah. if you can explore that, that's when like you can shine a light into those yeah. dark shadows, and that's yeah. when you can learn about that side of yourself and kind of learn about. Yeah. Oh, this is why my brain is doing this because I have
2: this. Yeah. Absolutely, totally agree. And the thing that. I struggled with the most in my own journey was coming from this Catholic upbringing and, you know, Catholicism, like lots of religions, um, have a process uh, of indoctrination that unless you do this, you will go to hell. If you do this, then God will punish you and send you off to hell and you will not go to heaven. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. In my heart, I don't believe that to be true. Many people do, and I respect their their journey, and if that resonates, including my mum, and if that resonates with her, and she and I have had many philosophical debates about God and religion. But for me, the Eastern view of God, of spirituality, of universal love, to me, speaks the loudest to me. So I, I have laid down my attachment to, I have to be good in order to go to heaven. I have to be good in order for people to like me. I can only show my light. I've laid down those things and it's a journey and I, you know, there's still some still some layers of my darkness that I haven't put out, you know, in the world yet, but each layer is unfolding as it should. But it kinda of took me fifty years to get to that point, you know, to really appreciate that. God is within all of us. That's my view, and you know we all come to our own conclusions and follow our own journey. But that we are all the same, we are all connected. This life is beautiful and precious, and we are travelling this together. And God is within. And I had a really amazing realization. Um, I've got a personal coach, and he's a spiritual coach, personal coach. But anyway, I did a session during the week, and as one of the outcomes of that coaching session. I was sitting in, we've got a little meditation and prayer room at home, we've got an altar, and we've got a variety of deities on the altar, you know, Ganesha and Hanuman and various other incarnations. And up until this point, I had looked at those deities as things to have a ritualistic practice towards, that the deities were an embodiment of enlightenment, of spirituality, of all things that were of a higher vibration. And I had to practice... Ritual, meditation, practice, chanting, puja, asana practice to be able to achieve what they had already achieved or what they represented. But the work that I'd done with Steve twisted that and turned it on its head. When I came out of the session that I had with him I sat and I was in the meditation room as we did that and looked around the statues and looked around the altar and for the first time in my entire life I saw them differently. I didn't see them as being different to me and on a pedestal. I saw them literally as my friends. And it was like, <laughs> I kind of get emotional talking about it, but it was like there was no longer a separation. Right? And I knew that intellectually and I had read that in a million different books and heard it in a million different ways from amazing people. But that was my own realization that there is no separation, that Ganesha is in me. And it was like sitting with a bunch of mates, all being equal. And that my practice, literally this literally this week, has changed from a ritualistic practice of devotion to deities that I perceive to be of a higher vibration, almost bowing down to them, to a practice of love, to going in and, and going into that meditation room or going into my practice with Hanuman and others as a sense of a friend, a sense of someone who is there to support me on my journey, not judge me on my journey. So that unlocking of, of the... Catholicism in me the combining of the yogic wisdom some coaching and maybe just getting older <laughs> led me to a real insight for myself yeah and that that's changed my practice fundamentally and I suspect will change my teachings um, as well and change certainly change my relationship um, with my partner so it's it's been a big week yeah a big amazing week. Mm-hmm.
1: me and have both had those experiences where you can read something in a book and mm. understand the concept on an intellectual level, and then you'll have this moment where it's like the penny drops another yeah. level, and you're like, ah, oh, and you right. really feel it on a like a deeper, yeah. emotional, personal level. Yeah. And probably, you know, I know they have had realisations like that, and there's other layers deeper than that as well. It's like the penny keeps dropping, yeah. or the lotus keeps opening, yeah. or you just keep yeah. kind of coming to these deeper layers of understanding about yeah. these concepts that you can yeah. encounter and read about and practice and yeah. then
2: embody. Yeah. And I thought I knew that. Yeah. Right? yeah I actually that's thought it. this was the really cool thing, right? I'd read it. I accepted it as truth. I taught it, right? I actually you know, spoke to people about it in class. I thought that I lived it, but there was a part inside of me that was unknown mm-hmm. to me known had I gone deeper, but was unknown to me at that point in time that actually didn't believe it. And I didn't know I didn't believe it until that moment when the realisation came that this information, however it came to me, I'm not sure, but all of a sudden that was the last unlocking to allow me into that space to see this in a completely different light. I was like, oh my God, why was I not seeing this in this way all the time? I taught it. I thought I believed it, but I actually wasn't truly living it until that happened. You know, there was a resistance in me, but no more.
0: And
1: probably, like, there is that ability to for your, like, all of our minds to open to that next level of understanding in all aspects yeah. of this practice, yeah. yeah, and life,
2: yeah. And to the, the big, absolutely, and the big change for me was to do the practice with love. Just do it because you love it. Don't do it because it's a ritual or a devotion. And you can do that, of course, if that's Because recording. that's what a good yogi does. Yeah. But don't come to your mat, right, with this idea of, is I have to do it. Come to your mat or come to your puja or your meditation, your mindfulness. Come to it from a place of love. Come to a place that this is my life. This is what not what I have to do, but this is the way I choose to live. And all of a sudden, there's a sense of lightness that comes to everything, right? So it has joy. And whether you choose to be in a handstand or not, who cares? It's this embodiment of love and connection to self that fundamentally changes not just the yoga practice, but changes your life, right? And you know, yoga and life, you know, in the holistic sense of course are the same same. But you know, in the West we've taken small parts of it. But for me, yeah, it's been a, it took me a long time to get there. And then, then I start to question what other parts of me are still unlocked and unknown, and I suspect many. <laughs> um, <laughs> well,
1: I as, think it's like a lifetime journey for everyone. Absolutely. Like, so yeah. I'm
2: kind of hungry again to go, okay, so what next, right? What, what other parts of me that are unlocked? So I all of a sudden this idea of shraddha, right, of unconditional faith in the unknown, now makes sense to me. Yeah? The chanting and the prayers to deities, to God, to whomever, makes sense to me now it's not chanting perhaps in a with a catholic little voice in the back of my head saying chanting god i'm being good hear me chant to you please give me your blessings it's chanting of love and devotion and just we're all in this together right it's just such a fundamental shift for me so yeah i feel grateful to achieve that much and if that's all i achieve in this lifetime i'm okay with that yeah but i suspect there's there's a few more layers yet we'll see the
1: beautiful thing about these practices as well is it shifts it from something that you will receive in the future if you do the practices right to something you receive in the present moment to you know like you already have the
2: benefit if you want to put it that way yeah yeah cleansing yeah so cleansing
1: and Mm. so do you have advice for the days where you're not feeling the love and the joy do you skip practice that day? Do you have um, like a practice to help to you shift your state of mind if you don't feel like unrolling your mat? Or is yeah. your practice that day to
2: rest or yeah. to go outside? I think that's such an important and fundamental question. You know, thank you for bringing that into the agenda. Because we all have days right, where we wake up in the morning and we don't feel like doing anything. Yeah? Or we feel disconnected or we feel grumpy for no good reason. Yeah? And this... This idea that yoga is all bliss and light and love, you know, is is a is a misunderstanding and a misconception, and I think can be very isolating for for lots of people. Because you just feel like you're a failed yogi if you're yeah, not feeling like correct. that. You know, if you if you wake up and go, I actually don't want to roll my mat out today. I don't want to do my meditation. I don't want to read a book or whatever is your whatever is your practice. And I don't have a, a fundamental one answer to that question. Some days. I will actually choose not to do anything. Other days, I will choose to do something. You know, I've found great, I'm very grateful to have found the ocean. For me, it's my go to. If I feel like that, I go to the ocean. But the big thing that I've learned recently is that if I plan to do, for example, an asthma class, and I wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I just don't feel like it, question, understand why I don't feel like it. And then if I make a choice, a conscious choice not to do it, the biggest thing that's shifted for me is don't feel guilty about it. Yeah. So if you choose to lay in bed and hit the snooze button and turn the alarm off, awesome. But devote yourself to that sleep. That's what your body needs. Do it with your whole heart. There is nothing worse than going, I'm going to switch the alarm off and then toss and turn in bed going, I should have gone to yoga. Yeah. It's like if you have that extra piece of chocolate cake, <laughs> then for God's sake, eat it. Yeah, you eat it with yourself passion, Own it. Yeah. and enjoy, yeah. love it, you know, and enjoy it. And don't eat it and feel guilty that you've put on, you know, you know, whatever. But just eat it passionately, be grateful for everyone who, who created that product for you. Be grateful that you have got this ability to digest it and taste and feel and be in it, right? So same with that. So, but other days, you know, and it's different for different people, but other days I, when I push myself through it and go, no. These are the days where I need to meditate. But if all else fails, you know, so I'm lucky enough to get to the ocean and that seems to fix everything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I've also got a partner who who doesn't allow me to drift off, right? She keeps me on track, so which is really cool.
1: And another practice that I've found for me personally in my home practice, if I am feeling really low energy, is yin as well. Oh, yeah. And you've been a really beautiful yin teacher in my practice mm. and my life. Would you mm. like to... Tell us a bit about when you discovered yin and mm. that aspect of your teaching mm. and practice. Mm.
2: I love yin so much. <laughs> uh, I could talk all day just, just on yin. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a slow, long practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I came to it by accident. Um, I saw a workshop uh, at Kula Yoga a couple of years ago now um, by Misan. We might have uh, even been to that workshop, probably a yeah. few well, years ago now, maybe three or four, four years ago. Mm. I don't know, maybe four years, maybe longer, maybe five years ago. But it was at cooler yoga um, uh, in Hawthorne. And, and Misan was the teacher running it was a weekend workshop for teachers, but also people who just just loved Yin um, or wanted to learn more about it. So it was kind of like an introduction to Yin. But from that very moment, I went, "Oh my goodness! Like, what what have we been missing out on? You know, it's the piece of the jigsaw for me." That is the counterbalance to the way that we live our lives. It's a beautiful juxtaposition to the stronger, uh, deeper vinyasa practices. It gets into parts of the physical and then the energetic body that the flowing asana classes uh, sometimes struggle to be able to get into, or they're not their intention to get into it.
1: Well, that's not a safe way to get into that. Not a safe way.
2: Totally not a safe way to get into it. But for me, it's the it's the physical, the physical layer between a yang practice and meditation so being able to sit quietly with yourself in a pose that's unlocking your connective tissue and opening energetic flows to me is a lovely next is is an intermediary step between a flowing asana class and meditation so it's like meditation you know on, on the mat in a pose i love it it's transformed the way i practice it's certainly transformed the way that i teach we have some form of yin almost in every class now i love how mm-hmm. you put
1: it in after a yeah. really active flow class today yeah. it's just like oh yes yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and the really cool things is i started to practice it that way right of the yin and yang together and then i put a class on to trial it and the feedback from our students um, has been overwhelmingly positive people love it it's, it's moving more to what i would call the complete practice and if you can get some meditation, some mindfulness, some breath work, some bandhas, some drishti, some yang, some yin in your practice, it gets to be a holistic practice rather than take out and isolate and just do one thing. And if you're only doing one thing, that's okay too, but do that for a reason. Yeah. If it's only isolating, you're only doing meditation, then sometimes you're not getting the fullest experience of other opportunities, right, with, with pranayama, for example. So yin, yeah, look, yin is to me just... For the way that in the West we live our lives, the ability to stop and slow down, but be still be doing something. So that where the mind is saying to us, "I need a to-do list." Well, you've got it. You've got a to-do list. You've got your postures to do. You've got your uh, surrender to do. So it gives the mind something to occupy itself but um, like this ability to rejuvenate, replenish, and nurture the body, and then ultimately the mind, and then other layers, as much as you want to go, is extraordinary. So I love yin, I love teaching it, I love seeing the benefits that it gives students, I love seeing the breakthrough that it gives, but it's also provided an insight into what I think is a gap in, our, uh, in the yoga industry, is that it unlocks pain in people, and trauma in people. And... Most of us who are yoga teachers are not trained professionals in counselling or other areas, other modalities that provide support once trauma or stories are unlocked inside of us. Yeah? And I think that's one of the great gaps and one of the great opportunities for us as an industry is to surround ourselves with people who are amazing support people in, in various, you know, various areas, whether that's in mental health or it's in energetic health. Or it's in rebalancing the body in various, various ways, either through physical modalities um, or through energetic uh, and spiritual modalities, is to surround ourselves. So here at Westside, we've now got on our website a list, and it's a growing list, it's certainly not an extensive list just yet, but a growing list of support practitioners who we know, love and trust, that if people have these breakthroughs, let's not call them breakdowns, but breakthroughs, and they need extra additional support, then we can say, here's some people that we know and love. And... They can select from that menu depending on what caused them and what they what they feel.
1: found for people as well, with people who I've referred on, to be able to refer to someone mm. who you have a personal connection to, it's very reassuring for yeah. the student who's had this traumatic experience. Yeah. Like, it's not very helpful just to tell someone, well, you should see a counsellor about yeah. that or mm-hmm. a therapist about that, yeah. to be able to say, look, this person's lovely yeah. and... Especially if it's someone who, like, specifically deals in, you know, an aspect of mental yeah. health that will benefit that person. Because yeah. yeah. it's scary for people yeah. to see a therapist to Absolutely. explore these layers of themselves. Also, yeah. And it just makes it one step more accessible for yeah. them.
2: Yeah. And it also, I think, takes the pressure off the teacher.
0: Oh, yeah. Right?
2: Because we're all, you know, if you're teaching yoga, you're a compassionate human being. <laughs> well, you should, you yeah. And people,
1: sure. people bring stuff to absolutely. you. They want to talk to you about these absolutely. things. And some of them are just like, I think you actually need to someone talk to someone with, you know, a deeper level of understanding about yeah. this than me as a yoga teacher. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, and I think you know, the lesson for us in yoga is to understand that that that's not our role. Where we're not there to be counselors. We can be um, supportive, but I think trying to fix people's problems at the end of a yoga class is not is not the appropriate way. You know, I think there's. There's, there's a window of opportunity there where that person is open to exploring those areas which are coming up for them. And if we can provide that support network, I think that, that opens a whole area for that person to heal, come back to love, reopen, and then the yoga practice then becomes a deeper expression as well. So I, I think we need to administer It's an area we should try and explore more.
1: The person can still keep coming to you for yoga and it's actually super valuable if you are going through something intense in your life, to actually have your yoga practice as a breath of fresh air away yeah. from that, like yeah. through Ran's illness, yin was that for me. Yeah. It wasn't gonna fix whatever else was happening in the rest yeah. of my life, but it was a time where I could just rest and breathe and tune to all of those sensations happening in my body and be yeah. present with that and set aside all of the other things I was dealing with with the rest of the day, and then emerge out of that. And I think sometimes if we try and bring psychology into yoga, we lose that moment when we can actually just move beyond the workings of our mind and be present in our body and in our breath. And if we're trying to like counsel people in our yoga practice, then it's almost like, what's the point? Yeah. They should see a counselor for that. And they should come to yoga
2: to yeah.
0: you know, do yoga. Yeah.
2: We can move in that direction i think you know the, it becomes a more holistic practice yeah that, that none of us can operate in isolation it ties us back into our community where we each support each other like the old tribes that you know each part of a tribe had, had a different role so we have roles as a yoga teacher Unless we're trained, we don't have roles as a psychologist or a spiritual healer or a cleanser or an osteopath or whatever that might. And that's why we have a tribe. it's why we have a community around us, yeah, so that we can each support each other.
1: That actually brings me to another aspect of your own training. You studied exercise physiology, mm. right? Mm. Would you
2: yeah. like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, a long time ago, right? So I have a, a degree in exercise physiology, a Bachelor of Human Movement Studies from the University of Queensland, so a four-year degree. Um so originally, I, when I finished that degree, I went and became uh, two things, an exercise physiologist in a, in a gym, um, did some work there, uh, but also and a personal trainer, but also became a phys ed teacher. So I went out and taught, right? So there's a, there's a dip ed that you can do at the end of the course, which you, enables you to go and be a, be a, a sports teacher, a physical education teacher. So I did that Did that for a number of years, Um I found that the education system and I didn't see eye to eye. <laughs> We've spoken um, to a couple of yoga teachers yeah,
1: who've done that journey, and I yeah. had that realisation.
2: <laughs> so then, I, I, much to my parents' dismay, I, I abandoned all that and, and took a job in real estate, which is a whole other story. But it's only now that I've come back to yoga that that study has been highly beneficial, particularly in Yin, because I studied you know anatomy and biomechanics and physiology for four years. I've got an insight into the way that the body works and how it works and why it works in particular ways. And by no stretch of the imagination, am I an expert in in that. But, you know, to understand anatomy and joints, biomechanics and physiology, allows you to be able to see, like when you see a class of students in a yin posture, for example, you can see a room full of skeletons, right? You can see the joints, you know the alignment, you know what that joint's supposed to do. Um, So adjustments or... Advice um, becomes much easier. So, so fortunately, <laughs> I've come full circle, and now you know, those four years of university study were not wasted, and they they are particularly helpful. And helpful in, I've done a small amount of teacher training as well, and so they've been very helpful in in being able to share with other students anatomy and physiology. But my view of a yoga teacher is that you you absolutely should have a good good thorough understanding of anatomy and physiology. It helps. We have, a, we have a responsibility of our students to make sure that they're safe and that they're aligned correctly and that they're receiving the full benefit of the practice and that they go home in a better shape than, than what they came. So it's certainly been beneficial, and I'm, and I'm pleased. to be me a while to get back here, but I'm pleased I was able to use that. Yeah, so it's very helpful.
1: Are there any yoga postures you've kind of taken off the menu based on what you know about the body, or is it more just about how you would instruct that pose so that people can be safe in whatever shape yeah.
2: they're making? it's more so no i haven't taken anything off um you know you always often as yoga teachers you'll hear that you know some studios don't teach this and i respect that you know for various reasons but my view is the body is extraordinarily robust yeah um and can withstand all sorts of, of challenges and positions it's about how you come into it but more importantly about why you come so if you're doing an advanced asana posture, and even you know, I think one of the most advanced asana postures or flows is chaturanga to up dog and back to down dog. You know, That's an advanced practice. Um, why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And how are you teaching it? So you know, I don't see that there are any unsafe postures in my experience, provided that you know your tribe, you know your students well, you understand anatomy and biomechanics, you work with bundas and breath, understand why you're doing it and it's a slow process in and practice this idea with, with students of delayed gratification. That if their goal is to do a headstand, amazing, that's their goal. It's not for me to say, yes, you sure should not do it. There are risks in doing a headstand. But if it's done correctly with enough guidance and support and done slowly and mindfully, then it's a highly, highly beneficial pose. It's when we, we want to get from almost no understanding and simply do a headstand, that injuries occur, because we don't know why we're doing it, we're not safe, we haven't built up the muscles energetically or physically, and then it can all start to unfold. So, But this idea of delayed gratification, I've enjoyed the journey of getting into headstand. Remember Dominique will talk about it a lot, say, if that's what you want to do, but take your time. Like it took me probably six or eight months worth of daily practice to get my headstand into a position where I felt it it was safe. And for the first six months, all I was doing was prep poses, coming up and down. Now, I knew how to do it, but my body wasn't quite ready for it. So, um, so no, nothing I've taken out, but I certainly have changed my um, way of teaching as a result of that, that knowledge.
1: I think headstand's a great example as well because say if someone came to you in class and said, I want to try headstand, headstand, if you just like shut that down with a like, oh, we don't practice that here, that's not safe, they're probably going to just try it at home with no yeah. guidance and no yeah. preparation and no help, right. but if you can kind of give them that safe framework yeah. and that understanding of their body, yeah. even if like they might come to their own realisation of like, oh, I don't have the shoulder strength to hold myself up, or if I do this preparation pose, my neck is already getting yeah. sore, maybe headstand is not a good pose for yeah. me, but it's like... You can educate someone rather yeah. than just, I don't know, make the decision for them and Correct. tell them they won't be safe and not really kind of give yeah. them an understanding of their own bodies. Yeah,
2: yeah. you couldn't, couldn't agree more. With that. And then the other layer, of course, is, is why. Because often I will ask students, why do you want to do a headstand? So when you change the why or you understand the why, you can change or understand your approach to it. If you want, simply do it because you've seen it in Yoga Journal or on Instagram then I would question that. that to me would be ego. But if you understand the energetic and physical benefits of it and you want to challenge yourself and you want to come into it in a safe way and you want to experience your body in a place where you have fear but you're able to surrender that fear and connect to love and express it in a shape, amazing. Yeah. So why are you doing it? You know, to me is one of the most most fundamental questions that I'll always ask a student beforehand. And myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what do you feel are your biggest challenges as a yoga teacher and what are your greatest joys? To me, uh, so many answers to
2: this question. To me, one of the biggest challenges as a yoga teacher
0: um,
2: is to be authentic. And what I mean by that is for life and your teachings to be seamless. That there's not one life outside the yoga studio, another life in the yoga studio is this way of being authentic. So for me that's one of the greatest challenges, is to keep that seamlessness between the two. So what I teach is not intellectual, but a felt experience or experience that I'm going through. So for me that's, that's certainly one of the, the greatest challenges. One of the other greatest challenges is the need to take care of ourselves as teachers. This ability to teach can only come when your own vessel is clean and clear and grounded and nurtured. Otherwise, I think we, be, we run the risk of becoming yoga instructors and not yoga teachers. You know, We've chosen this Dharma to teach for a whole raft of different reasons, but to me, at the end of the day, it's about self. It's, this is a, a journey of the self, you know, back into the self, as a very wise person once said. So unless we're taking care of ourselves and we have our own personal practice, um, I think we really, or I, struggle. So that routine of Keeping my practice clean and relevant, surrounding yourself with good teachers, teachers that you respect and love, keeping your mind and your food clean, you know, I think is a really important part of the practice, they're the things that I struggle with. My greatest joy is I absolutely am so grateful and love what I do, I love it, like I could not see myself doing anything else. And this will manifest and grow and change over time as I you know, as I grow. But I absolutely like, I absolutely love it. It's it's given me the greatest sense of joy. It's been my greatest teacher and my greatest challenge. It's pulled me apart and broken me down in ways that I never thought that I would. But held me, lifted me. You know, and I'm a completely different person to the person I was. You know, 10 years ago, to the person that I am today. So. My joy in yoga stems back to this connection to love, to self-love, universal love, and connection to other people. So for me, I'm so grateful for this journey.
1: And so you mentioned the importance of having teachers. Are there any key teachers that you'd like to tell us about?
2: Yeah, look... I've been lucky enough to, to have some wonderful uh, teachers over the years, but most recently I've come across a teacher called Chana, who you both know, who's in Northcote, who's not teaching at the moment. So he is an extraordinary human being, extraordinary soul. Do you, you guys know him?
1: I know of, of him, him? Yeah. and okay. I'm afraid, I'm ashamed to say, no. that I haven't actually made it to no. one of his classes, so even he's... though he lives right in our neighbourhood.
2: Yeah, yeah. So if you, you know, he's away at the moment, but if you ever get the chance, i can highly recommend him. I feel for me, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will come, that, that beautiful line. And I feel I've got a lot to learn in terms of the technicalities of teaching and vinyasa flow and a lot more for me to learn there. But for me, this next level of self-inquiry, he is an old school teacher. So he teaches what I would describe as energetic transfer. His, his asana classes are very simple in their flow but his level of philosophy that sits in behind that is is extraordinary and for me every time i go to his class there is a, a significant shift for me and a cleansing for me so he's he's my most influential teacher at the moment
1: we we'll definitely have to go now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: and he's old school, right? Yeah. He's old school in the way that he teaches, but he teaches with a level of authenticity that I've, I've not experienced in, in other other places. So, you know, you call him what you need at, at that point in time. Early on right in my career, you know, people like Dominique from Australian Yoga Academy, you know, was an amazing teacher. I've learned a lot. Through Andrew that I talked about earlier on, uh, through Les Leventhal, who's you know I, I've got the utmost respect for his sense of play and creativity and strength, you know. So I've, I've been fortunate. I've had many, many wonderful teachers over the years. And, but at the moment, to me, it's about spirituality, self-inquiry, and joyfulness, which Chana has has unlocked some some inquiry into that. So I'm, that's a journey for me at the moment. Beautiful. Yeah.
1: So to take things in a completely different direction. The reality of being a yoga teacher is you are often a one-person business or other people are you're responsible for other people's livelihoods if you're a studio owner. And I know you came from some time in the corporate world. Would you like to share a little bit about your business practices today or any advice that could be helpful for other yoga teachers navigating this somewhat fraught realm of the business of yoga?
2: It's a tough one. It's a tough one. People go in and open up a yoga studio for all, all sorts of reasons, but uh, you're quite right, I had 20 years in, in corporate, so in and, and fairly senior roles. So I learnt a little on that journey about business principles and practices, which I was able to transpose into this space. But I, I still struggle between the yogi in me and the businessman in me, yeah, and how I make decisions based upon that. Do I make decisions on the studio based on profit, or do I make decisions on what my heart believes is the absolute essence? For example, we've introduced meditation here as a regular part of our our, um, offering, right? Now the numbers that come to those meditation classes at the moment whilst they're growing from a pure financial point of view, lose us money. So I'm putting my hand in my pocket a couple of times a week to pay for meditation classes. To pay so, a teacher
1: when the student's correct. coming in so do not cover that cost. Correct.
2: So the income that we've got coming in doesn't cover the cost of the class, right? And we're doing that week in, week out. Now, the pure business part of me would say, cut that or do something different about it, but that's financially not working, so get rid of it. But my heart tells me that meditation is such a fundamental part of what we do and it's so important that I strongly believe we should continue to offer that, Yeah. And that's one of the things that helps change the world. But it's this constant push and pull between those two places, yeah? So being the businessman and being the the yogi. Fortunately, the yogi wins out most times. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, once again, there's been a lot written about this. But if you do something you love and you commit your whole heart to it, you commit passionately to it, and you surround yourself with great people, which I've been fortunate enough, we've got amazing teachers and amazing support team. Do what you love then the money will take care of itself. You know, and we make enough money to pay our rent and to put a roof over my head. We don't earn a lot of money, but we earn enough, yeah? So I would rather do this and lead this life than a corporate life where the bank account was eight times bigger than what it is now, but there was a part of me that wasn't wasn't being fulfilled. But, you know, if you're thinking about opening a yoga studio, think long and hard about it. It's a business, yeah? You've got obligations, tax obligations, legal obligations. You've got obligations to your teachers, obligations to your students. It's a it's a small business. And whether you run a milk bar or an accounting firm or a plumbing business or a yoga studio, it's a business. So think long and hard about what, why you're opening your yoga studio, yeah? Um, and and I've seen... Guess.
1: Think long and hard about how much of your own time you want to put into the administration and the running of that business or if you're going to partner with someone else to handle that.
2: Absolutely. And it's, it's a couple of hours worth of administration type work every day. Every day. Now, if that's not your thing, then perhaps contemplate a different approach to opening a yoga studio. But I love it. But there are times where it will also shackle you, it will tie you so if you're a yogi that wants to go and teach in India and travel, and I experienced this when we were away recently, and you're not at your studio with your community, then that has some impacts on that community, right?
1: Yeah, when you take a holiday, your students do too. They stop coming.
2: Correct. So there's this, this balance between the two. So, you know, what once again, for me, it was absolutely the thing to do at the time, and they me to step into a space of yoga and experience stuff that I didn't would have otherwise experienced. But... Yeah, it's a, it's a business. So if you're going into it, going with your eyes open, go into it with plenty of surplus capital because it often takes six, even 12 months sometimes to get your cash flow up. And really, you're, you're judged upon the performance of your last class. And there are many, many studios opening up and many, many good studios opening up. And there's a lot of competition. Believe in yourself. You know, my view of the world is unless every person is practicing yoga in its full context every day, there is room for more studios. So it's not about being cutthroat in business but it's about sharing this journey and what we know and we will each teach differently and you'll go and I encourage our students to go to other studios because you'll learn stuff from other studios that we won't be able to teach you because we have a certain skill set, they have a certain skill set, go there, experience that, come back if you want, stay there if you want. This idea of us against the world, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about opening a studio, try and break some of those walls down. And teach it and open that studio because that's what calls you and you love it, not because it's a romantic notion of that it's a really beautiful thing to do, open a yoga studio. Or well,
1: that you're going to make a whole lot of money out of it. <laughs>
2: yeah. And some studios do, you know, but most most just sort of cover their, cover their costs and some, unfortunately, don't make it. So think about the why a lot. <laughs> and, sur- and the second thing, surround yourself with the best people. That's such an important component
1: this kind of leads us to another question that was some great advice for a more established teacher who was thinking about opening a studio do you have any advice to brand new teachers just starting out
2: (laughs) yes I touched on it earlier a couple of things teach what you love absolutely teach what you love if you love it if you love that flow that sequence that way of speaking then that will resonate with students do not be concerned if you go into a studio and you're a new teacher there and you lose some students. Some will gravitate to you, some will not. This is life, yeah? So teach what you love. If you teach what you love, that will vibrate and accessible to students, right? And people people sense it. People sense it and will come to you. Be authentic. For goodness sake, please don't talk about stuff in a yoga class that you don't know anything about. For example, if you don't know things about meridians and Chinese medicine, please don't talk about it. If that's your own personal experience and training, awesome, share that. Be authentic. Be you, yeah? Don't replicate someone else. Respect, admire, learn, aspire, amazing, but be you, right? Be you. And keep it simple. Keep it simple. Try not to overly complicate your flow, your teachings. Some of the most extraordinary teachers I've ever come across have the most simplistic flows, most simplistic themes to their classes but it's deep, it's authentic, they love it, it resonates, it sits with students and if people can take home one or two things to practice at home or think about or feel at home, then that's an amazing experience. So my last piece of advice would be, and we touched on a bit earlier on, take care of yourself. Please take care of yourself. You know, Keep your vessel clean, nurture yourself, meditate, eat good food, get plenty of rest. And remember that you are the eternal student. Yeah. And if you think that you know everything,
0: I suggest that's a red flag, right there. (laughs) I
2: suggest rethink that and 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 just enjoy the journey. Enjoy it, love it.
0: And that I guess leads on a little bit. You've done a, a little bit of work where you mentioned facilitating teacher trainings. Would you like to talk about perhaps what led you to start doing that? Teacher training,
2: you know, there's so many of them around, right? So there's a plethora. You, know, you go back maybe ten years ago, you know there was maybe three or four teacher training programs. Now, now it seems like you know every second studio has got its own teacher training program. So there's a lot. So the question again is why? Why would you set up your own teacher training? So I was lucky enough to be able to partner with the Om people, Izzy and, and Josh, um, who are you know, amazing yogis and teachers in their own right, and we set up or, or they set up, and invited me into. Um, to that business called the On People and we provided training here um, at Westside physical training and then we went to India so the why for me was there's so much to share there's so much energetic uh, goodness that can be shared by creating high-quality grounded connected loving teachers so if I was able to convey some of that and create people who could or help share information that would help create teachers that we're coming into the industry and providing quality experiences for students, then that was a way to keep this lineage of yoga continuing on. For me it was never about the financial gain. You know, yes, as a business, you know, you can make some a small amount of money out of teacher training. But it's really it came for me for me about a love of this industry, a love of what we do, a love of yoga. And it was sharing that love. And if we could create that sense of love and knowledge and small insights into wisdom through people, then they would take that and embody it in their own practice, but then embody that as teachers, and so it goes, and so it goes. So it was trying to create a way of engendering what we loved into those students, and it was a truly transformative experience. We went to India for the last two weeks of the training, and we took 17 people with us, And that was one of the most transformative experiences that I've had the pleasure of and joy of being involved in.
1: Was there anything that you particularly learned from your teacher trainees over that time?
2: What I got reminded of was this ability to hold and support each other, that we are all connected, that we are all in this together. And there were a number, in fact, everyone at some point had a breakdown and a breakthrough. But the way that that group, came in and amalgamated and held that student. We, Izzy, Josh and I, needed to do very little, if anything. The group held them. And that was such a delicious reminder of the importance of community and trust and love, you know, that we're all in this together. So, yeah, they they re-reminded us of the importance of that. Uh, India itself, my goodness, teaches you <laughs> so much. <laughs> I was going to say, so like, I, pretty, I think pretty
1: much everyone has a bit of a breakdown or a breakthrough on any trip to India, let alone adding in <laughs> teacher training and yeah. group dynamics and all of that. Uh,
2: yeah, we're you know, India is such a such a beautiful place and challenging on so many levels. But we were we we're in Rishikesh, and you know, I don't know what the population of Rishikesh is. I guess it oscillates. I don't know, 30,000, I, I don't know what the population is. And I think the,
1: the, the local population is quite separate to yeah, the yoga tourist yeah, population. Yeah, there is a,
2: definitely a separation there. But where we were, you know, in the sort of middle of Rishikesh down by the Ganga there, you know, to see people in their hundreds devoting themselves to their belief in their God, uh, whether that was the Ganga or whether it was you know through other deities and their practice was truly inspiring. I don't think I saw one Indian, native Indian person practicing any form of asana at all. I'm sure they did at some point what I did see was a lot of devotion, a lot of prayer, a lot of puja, a lot of fire ceremonies. Yeah, those beautiful arty yeah, fire ceremonies ch- every evening. Yeah, you know? I, didn't, I didn't see too many down dogs, you know. So I'm sure that occurred somewhere, but that was so much more bhakti, so much more devotional yoga. And that was a really reminder of the importance of that layer of this yoga journey.
1: Seeing people really live their yoga practice. Correct. Parallel to the dream of opening their own yoga studio, a lot of yoga teachers have the dream of running retreats in beautiful locations around the world. And I know you've done a little bit of that. Do you have any advice you'd like to share for teachers thinking about it? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, think about why you're doing it. It is work. Right? It's an offering and it's work. And yeah, it looks romantic and sexy and you're in a beautiful location and you're doing this. paid to do stuff.
1: yoga all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: but you're also dealing with people. And you're dealing with people 24-7, right, for whatever period of time that you're there. So the advice that I give was, you know, please make sure that you check out the venue and the food and the quality of it and the bedding and Like, all do your own logistics. trip there first? Absolutely. Do your own trips there first and have your own experiences of what, what it's like. That's invaluable. Understand the region at which you're in. Look at what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. That's a really important component of it. Forget about the money to some degree. I know that will make some people go, ah, but almost forget about the money. And, yeah, you can't lose money, of course. You know, that's not, we're not in the business of losing money. But keep the numbers small enough that the experience can be intimate and authentic for the student. You know, and you can run a retreat for 40 people or 20 people. To me, the smaller numbers, the more intimate is a greater experience and for both the teacher and the student. So keep your numbers manageable, do your homework, understand what you're trying to achieve. There's a plethora of yoga retreats out there. So what's your point of difference? Why are you doing it? Because it looks good and it's a cool thing to do and a nice thing to have on your resume? Or do you feel like you have something authentic, real, to, to teach and share with people?
1: Even the thought of navigating 20 people around the world seems pretty daunting. Would you think for that number of people would need an assistant? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And a piece of advice i give around that is... Take someone with you that is your administration and logistics assistant. So if someone's, you know, there's mosquitoes in their room or their plumbing doesn't work or they've had a bad meal or they can't sleep at night or the air conditioner doesn't work, that that person's looking after all that for you. If you're there as a teacher, it's important, once again, that you're just simply focused on the student and on the teaching and the transmission of information backwards and forwards and not worrying about whether someone's toilet's blocked up. Now, if your tour's block up, that's real and important and needs to be dealt with. But if you're spending your time in that space, you're not staying grounded in the teaching that. So take an administration person with you, someone who loves dealing with all that sort of stuff, and have them deal with it so you're not exposed to that. And yes, you need to be aware of it as, you, as the overall facilitator. They can
1: just come and tell you when it's all sorted out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just before we started the podcast talk, you were just sharing with Ran and I your vision for... A retreat center here in Australia where you'll actually be living and teaching from would you like to tell us a little bit about that mission because it sounded pretty amazing
2: yeah so this is this is you know Dharma in action so myself and my partner Lindell, Pope, we are planning to create a space called the sources is that is the name of it so stay tuned on that so this is a place that we uh, feel absolutely called to so in simple terms It's a parcel of land, so we're in the process of looking for land at the moment. Somewhere around where we live, so we live at Janjak. Those people don't know where Janjak is, right next door to Torquay. Somewhere in that region down towards the Otway, so somewhere along the coastline there, exactly where uh, we don't know yet, we're in the realm of looking for land. We'll know when we find it. We're looking for land that causes that's got spirituality and, and connection to it that is somewhat untouched. But this is, for us... A transition from doing to being. So, the being is, this will be a place where we live, it will have a studio, it will be a yoga studio, it will then transmute itself into other forms and whether that's dance therapy or chanting or bhakti or other forms of devotion and learning, it'll be a space that's a multi-dimensional space. It'll have yoga at its heart because that's what we, we know and we love. But Lyndall is a you know is a dance therapist, among other things, so we will have other modalities coming into it, meditation and pranayama. It'll be off-the-grid, sustainable living in that true essence. It'll be a community, so you'll be able to come for a day, a week, a month, a year. We'll have retreats there. You can live there. Um, the best model that I can think of is the uh, Satyananda Ashram uh, at Rockland, at, in, near Dalesford there. So for us, this is a place of coming back to the principles of the village, but having at its heart this, this sense of connection of love, so connection back into the earth, connection into spirituality, connection, connection into joy, you know, music and laughter, connection back into sustainability. So for us, no longer just talking about it, no longer just teaching it, but truly embodying it and truly living it. So this will be our home, it'll be where we live, it'll be where we teach, it'll be where we invite the best practitioners, the greatest minds and thinkers in, and to invite community to come in and share this. For example, even during the construction of it, you know, where we want most of the structures, if not all the structures, to be of a mud brick, for example, that's made out of the earth. So people will come and learn how to build mud brick structures, for example. Right? Planting sustainable gardens, getting stuff off the grid, connection into nature. So if you think about all cultures, from the Aboriginal culture, which we will undoubtedly support and uh, and respect, to things like the Indian culture, so teepees and sweat lodges, um, through to dance, through to things that involve exploration of plants and holistic way of taking care of yourself. So. It's a way of living. And it will evolve based upon what the community brings. So we've got a plan, and then we have no plan. We want to open ourselves up and trust. And we'll need support and help to get through, you know, to do what we've got in mind. And it was funny this morning, I think I mentioned to you, I was talking to three of our students after the class about this very concept. And all all of them said, we'll come and help. And what I didn't know is one's an engineer who said, we'll come and help you with all the engineering stuff. One's got skills in town planning, so he works through all those layers, and one's an amazing film producer and public relations expert, and, and all of them have offered their services to come and help us in this process. So, but this is what we want. We don't want to do it in isolation and then open up and say, come, we want this to be a collaborative approach. So for us, this is, this is the next layer. And what, in its fullest expression, what it will offer is what we're calling a whole-of-life experience, Yoga in the West at the moment, for most people, attracts people from their sort of you know early 20s or late teens through to 60s and 70s mostly. Yeah? And people who are moderately healthy and can move you know, have got some form of income, because yoga to come to class is not an inexpensive exercise. But what, what we see is that it's missing the bookends. So how you take it, and there's so much to talk about here, but I'll, I'll try to keep it really simple all the way from conscious conception so if you're planning on having a child how you connect and call in a spirit a child an energy into your relationship into your body and how that whole birthing process and then how we engage with that human being to make them conscious aware loving wise you know, taking things like the Steiner School and their approach, I'm not saying that they're you know, the be-all and end-all, but it's a really creative way of thinking, so taking some of that logic and how we incorporate that, bring that all the way through life, and then at the end of it, come back to some of those really beautiful, deep, eastern principles of how you die with grace, and how those around you support you in that dying process of your physical body and the transition from this world to the next, you know, the Bardo practices, practices of the Buddhists. So we, in its full expression, it's a whole of life experience from conception through to ridding yourself of the human body. So it's a big project. We'll, we'll, it'll evolve uh, and take shape over time. You know, so we need. We're looking for sort of anything around a hundred acres, or maybe slightly less, but deep spiritual, ritualistic practices that are connected into to mother nature and into the earth and into each other. Beautiful a place of love. Mm, sounds yeah. amazing.
0: For me going through my whole experience with illness and, and that was sort of part of the reason I jumped into yoga and these practices so deeply is just because I, I really do believe in their, their importance when it comes to the way we deal with death and dying. So, yeah, yeah, no, I think it's an amazing thing. That yeah, can, uh,
2: yeah. I mean, you, you, you faced it, right? You, you faced it. You stood there and you looked at it head on right? and I suspect, you know, it could have gone either way for you and you faced it and looked at it and from where I sat, you know, embraced it, almost thanked it for its presence and worked through it. I mean, this could go either way, but whatever happens, I'm going to do this with grace and with humility and with passion. And you, and you put yourself there. You, know, you could have hit away, locked yourself in a room and went, "Whoa, is me, and I'm sure you had moments of that. But what we saw was someone who was extraordinarily brave and went, you know what, I'm taking this head on and I'm taking it with love, You know, and I'm going to do what I need to do. And here you are today, a testament to that journey. You know?
0: Thank you. It's extraordinary. And again, I guess like, you were incredibly generous to me at that time. You gave me about six months' worth of free classes. I'm not sure if you want me to mention that <laughs> or not. But, um, and and that again was also you know part of the um, generosity of the yoga community and and the sort of joy and and just loving of life that it can yeah. bring is part of the reason that I decided to follow a teacher training. Yeah. And, and look
2: what look what happened, right? Mm. Look what happened now. now. Mm. Look, at, look at what you're doing now. Mm. You know, and to me, that's such a small contribution that we were able to, to offer to you during that time. Such a small contribution. And to me, this but is... such this a is, massive
1: energetic contribution to our quality of lives correct. at yeah. that time. at that time, yeah. Being able to come to yoga was a yeah. way to tap into that energy yeah. that you are talking about, of embracing life, yeah. of being present yeah. and... Yeah, like having your studio just around the corner from yeah. us was an amazing sanctuary yeah. through
2: that time. Yeah. And thank you f- for that feedback. But it's also, to me, just it's just what we do. you know. Like At one point in time, I've got something that can support you. At some point in time, you're going to offer something that will support me. And if not in this lifetime, then in another. Or you'll support someone else. And so it goes. There's this whole, I don't even want to use the term paid forward type expression because that can be quite limiting. But this idea that by giving love in in all of its expressions, it unlocks something inside of us and we share that and we share it with someone close to us, we share it with someone away from us, but we share it, you know, and each time we share it, there is healing, there is connection that that starts to occur and this idea that this world can live in a place of peace and love, you know, maybe isn't as crazy as what it seems, you know, that maybe, it might not be in our generation or our kids' or our grandkids' generation, but... My goodness, at some point, I believe with my whole heart that it's possible that we can live as a fully integrated you know, society that, that embraces differences and see us all as the same.
1: I think it's that microcosm, macrocosm, if you can have someone in your yoga practice and then after that practice, say they get into a challenging situation and they have the ability to respond with peace and love, love then that's yeah. just that one moment. But that can have rippling repercussions that they're not aware of and you're not aware of and, you know, it's like a drop in the ocean, but the ripples of that drop continue to flow
2: outwards. Absolutely, yeah. And this, this is the beauty of what we do, yeah, it's the beauty of what we do. And we do something that enriches our soul, but by default, asks questions and provides platform for other people to have their own experiences, yeah. So, you know, we're extremely lucky to be yoga teachers. You know, I even hesitate to use that word. Am I truly a teacher, really? I I, I don't know. I I often, you know, I don't know if I'm actually a teacher. I look at my teachers and go, my goodness. (laughs) But what we do is we share what we know and we share what we love and we share it as authentically and as real as we can. And I've had days where I've come in here, you know, and felt just dreadful. I mean, you commute
1: from the surf coast now. I'm sure that can be a
2: challenge at times. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. But... If you show up and you show up authentically, it gives other people permission to be real as well. Like I've had days when I've turned up here, I felt dark and brooding and off-centre and ungrounded. And the easiest thing to do is to ring up someone and say, can you teach for me today? The most real thing you can do is actually show up. But say to your students, today I'm feeling off-kilter, I'm off-centre, you know. So bear with me. I apologise if the class is not as flowing as what you expected. But this is what's happening for me right now. But I'm going to be here for you. Right, I'm going to be here, I'm going to teach to my, to my absolute utmost, and we'll see where that goes. And the moment you show that vulnerability, my goodness, it's happened a number of times in my classes where I've just felt upside down, and I've shared that with students. The amount of support that you get as a teacher, so if you think you always have to be the person supporting them, have a think about that. They're there to support you as well. Yeah, And feel vulnerable, be, be authentic, and they'll take care of you, and the practice will take care of you.
1: And that just leads us into the question: Is there one thing or a key thing that you most want your students to take away from your teaching in your class?
2: Sounds simplistic, right? And it's a, it's a generic. It's in some ways, sounds like a generic answer, but to me, it's the absolute fundamental. This ability to love ourselves unconditionally. And we talk about it, and we hear about it, and you know, in almost every yoga class I go to, I hear about anahata and self-love and. But if we can crack that, if you as an individual, if I as an individual can crack that self-love in this lifetime, then everything else from my part of the world then takes care of itself. You know, and that beautiful quote from Lunig, and I'm paraphrasing it here with respect to Lunig, so I apologize to Lunig, <laughs> but I don't quite get it right. But it says something along the lines of, to be truly happy, we simply have to learn to love one another. It's that simple. And it's that difficult, but it's the only way. But To be able to learn to love everyone else, you can only come, in my belief, you can only come from a place if you truly, authentically, everyday love yourself. And that's our biggest single journey. And we're not, the thing is, we're not learning to love ourselves, we're relearning. Yeah? The love, as you guys know, as yoga teachers and, and sincere practitioners, that the love is there. And love is inside each of us. We just we cloud it with all sorts of stuff, but if we can learn that, you know, to me that's the single greatest self lesson is love. Beautiful. Namaste. Beautiful.
1: Namaste. Namaste.
0: So it's time for our picks of the week, and I actually mentioned this book uh, during Karina's episode. I was ordering it and could not wait to get it, and now I'm about two thirds of the way through it, and it is such an amazing book it's by christopher harish wallace who's a sanskrit scholar but he's also a practitioner so he translates uh, this piece and i won't try and pronounce the actual name but it was it's a 1000 year old spiritual masterpiece uh written by um Kshay maraja and it's called the recognition sutras it's a non-dualistic tradition so basically he's saying everything is awareness everything is consciousness which is something i think you alluded to earlier and and had that realization that you know these deities you're you're looking at are sort of part of your friends that you love and i've been working with some of the practices in this book and sort of having little unlockings here and there so this is a beautiful book recognition Sutras by christopher wallace i definitely recommend it 100%
1: Um, something that you shared with me about that book as well which is really cool is because it's his own translation and he's a sanskrit scholar sometimes there's multiple meanings for the same words and Mm -hmm. he'll give you both and Mm. kind of explain the differences and i think that's often a criticism of translations from sanskrit it's through the lens of the translator Mm. so it's really cool if you get multiple perspectives within yep. those same words,
0: mm. and, and often it can be a very dry academic sort of reading of it. So this is this is really good. He obviously loves the work. He, um, you know, he wants to share it with the world. So,
1: well, my pick of the week is by Anadeya Judith, and it's Eastern Body, Western Mind, and it's actually a book that I read when I was travelling through India about ten years ago, and. It's a description of the chakra system, but it's also a Western psychology reading of the workings of the mind and an interweaving of the two of them together. And it's very much food for thought. It's not about diagnosing anyone in your class or having a narrow kind of, oh, my chest feels sore, my heart chakra is doing this. It must mean this is happening for me mentally. It's just all of these different points of view that all come together in a beautifully expressed exploration of eastern and western perspectives on the mind and the body and she's a beautiful writer. I gave away my original copy which was pretty much falling apart after the (laughs) India trip so um, I'm really happy to reread it 10 years on and just see how my own understanding has changed in that time. Mark do you have a pick of the week?
2: I do, I do. Uh, A book I'm still reading, uh, it's called Fasting the Mind by Jason Gregory and it talks about the importance and the practices of meditation, but looks at it from a completely different perspective. Um, he brings in a whole variety of different traditions and different practices, and this idea of fasting the mind, and by that what he means is allowing the mind to be um, taken away from or removed from the avidity, the chatter, yeah, and this ability to be able to hold into meditation. And it's a really interesting approach to the ancient tradition of meditation. So. Called Fasting the Mind by Jason Gregory. I highly recommend it.
0: I'll oh, check that out. Yeah,
1: fantastic. Mm.
0: Well, thanks again for meeting with us and talking yeah, with pleasure. us and sharing Thank you. your wisdom. Yeah, Thank it's our pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's been, it's been a joy, Namaste. guys. Namaste. Thank you so
2: much. Namaste.
0: Thanks again for listening. We love talking to Mark and hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. We'll be posting all the links we mention in the show notes. And if you live in Melbourne, we highly recommend you check out one of Mark's classes. Now, we're really excited about the guest for our next episode, Karalia Grant of the Yoga Lunchbox fame. It's a great conversation and we delve into topics such as writing, kundalini awakening, and how yoga is a practice for waking up and what that even means. So stay tuned for that one. Just before we leave you, I'd like to ask that you subscribe or rate us on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. It will really help us get the word out there so we can share this podcast with the world. Finally, we would really love to hear from you. You can drop a note on our website at podcast.flowartist.com or look for us on Facebook or Twitter. The theme song in this podcast is Baby Robots by Gosol and used with permission. Do yourself a favor and get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks again. Big, big love.